Welcome to But Jesus Drank Wine and other stories that kept us stuck. I'm Mead. And I'm Christy. In this podcast, we'll explore the stories that kept us, well, stuck, wanting to drink and not wanting to drink all at the same time. Join us as we show you that freedom from alcohol does not have to mean a life sentence of misery and missing out, but actually means living an authentic life full of peace, joy, and purpose. This is so exciting, you guys, because obviously we're all TNM coaches. Another coach, oh, Coach Terry mentioned Maureen to me mm-hmm. in passing, said that I needed to get to know you. And I set up a little WhatsApp, as you gals know, of like TNM Christian coaches. So we've gotten to know each other through that. So, anyways, there's so many reasons I'm excited to have you on today. So, Maureen lives in Annapolis, Maryland. She's been married over 30 years to her hu- hubby, John. She has been a health and fitness enthusiast for over 30 years, both personally and professionally. She, like Mead, worked in pharmaceutical sales for five years and then ran a successful personal training and Pilates studio with a, like, a variety of amazing fitness classes. And she even completed two figure competitions, which I, I don't even know what to say about that, in her early 40s. <laughs> All while, and this I'm quoting you here, um, using alcohol to, quote, celebrate my achievements or numb me from pain and take me right back into the detox to retox cycle, which I so resonate with that mm-hmm. whole thing. I know what me does too. Today, we're going to talk to Maureen about detox to retox, how we all got stuck in that. But also, we're going to talk about her journey through infertility and how that led to Yeah, just depression and pain for you and how you used alcohol to numb, which I'm just so glad we're all on the other side of all of that, all of us, all the pain. But I know I've I've been prepping myself actually all day because I I know this is going to be an emotional episode. And I'm just so grateful to you for being here, being open, telling your story, because I know that it's going to touch so many women who are probably desperate to hear from someone like them that has used alcohol to numb pain and infertility. So I'm just going to I'm just going to start us off all off by yeah, welcoming you and how did it all how did it all start for you? Oh, well, thank you me and Christy for having me first of all. I'm excited to share my story. It's been a long time I for so long didn't want to talk about it and and share for many different reasons. But how it all started for me was grew up in an Italian family, uh, last of five kids. My brothers and sisters, you know, were all growing up in the 60s and 70s. So I knew about drugs and alcohol from my siblings. And so probably got into it earlier than most. I remember the first time I drank, gosh, I might have been 12. And uh, we took a bottle of vodka from my parents' cabinet and a bunch of our friends, we all drank it together. We were all 12 years old and got, you know, sick and threw up. And of course, my parents thought my older brother took the vodka and he covered for me knowing that I did that. Mm. But that was my first time, and you know, drinking and go right into the binging that was there from the beginning. And, and then in high school, I'd had a lot of social anxiety as a kid growing up. I was bullied as a young girl. Couldn't figure out why because I thought I was a pretty fun and nice kid. But and gorgeous. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you know how bullies are. I, no rhyme or reason. But as a little kid, I couldn't process that. And that stayed with me growing up. So I was very uh, socially insecure and had just transferred to another school because the bullying got pretty bad. 
And my mom had transferred me, mom and dad, to an all-girls Catholic school. So completely different than public school. But I met my four best friends that are still, were best friends to this day. But we, we would go to football games. And before that, we would go across the state line from Pennsylvania to New Jersey. We all had fake IDs and we could get alcohol. So we got Boone's Farm wine, which was this terribly sugary, gross, disgusting stuff. Kids, you know, alcohol is pretty tasty when it tastes like strawberry or blueberries or whatever. Yeah. And we would literally each drink a bottle. And but I discovered I was, uh, you know, funny and people liked me and I was relaxed. And so it seemed like the magic elixir to me. And I continued that like most of my friends through college, but, you know, drinking on the weekends, we would study, work hard during the week and then start the weekends. You know, I had some episodes of, of binging, but really not as much. I was president of my sorority. So whenever a responsibility kind of thing was in there, I, you know, you have, you think about it more. But then I left um, college and became a pharmaceutical sales rep. And during this time was probably like my first time depression started to set in. It was a challenging job, as you know, need. And I was in the territory in a new town all by myself. And hmm. I was very depressed, but I, I didn't turn to alcohol at that time, but actually I was selling antidepressants. And, and as you know, Mead, when you're a pharmaceutical rep, they teach you everything about whatever system it is, whatever drug you're selling, you learn in depth. So I learned a lot about depression. And at the same time, I was suffering from depression. And I had a closet full of antidepressants. And of course, I was taking them and they definitely helped. But then as time went on and John and I got married, and early on, my gynecologist told me, she's like, you have endometriosis. I've had several laparoscopies. She's like, if you guys want to have children, you really need to start. So we started right as soon as we got married, 26 and 27 in 1992. And both of us came from big families. So neither one of us ever considered there would be a problem. And got pregnant pretty fast, like within the first six months of trying. So excited. You know, I, I was exercising at the time. I was teaching fitness. I had now moved from pharmaceutical sales into becoming a personal trainer and aerobic instructor and really loving what I did. So I was very fit. And I went to visit my sister. I was pregnant and we were excited and we were in California and we were running. We went and did something called the Santa Monica Steps. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's no, a big exactly thing. Right up down. Beautiful. And it was great. We had such a good day. By that time uh, we got home and dinner time, I started to spot and bleed. And a couple hours later, I miscarried. I was with my sister, who was amazing. But I was, you know, it was really hard. And of course, I thought, I must have done, I should have run those steps. I shouldn't have done that. My gynecologist was great. I called him California time. It was two in the morning this time. And he picked up the phone and he assured me, he's like, pregnancy wasn't viable. You know, but you could try again. You'll get pregnant. You're young and you're healthy. And so six months later, a year later, we're still trying. We're realizing this is not happening. So we started doing fertility treatments. I don't know if either one of you have ever been through those, but they're brutal emotionally, physically, even the injections that at the time, this is how they were doing it when I was going through it. Injections to sort of first shut your system down like you're in menopause, and then hyper-stimulate so you're producing all these eggs, much more than you normally would. And then they take them out of your body, fertilize them outside of the body with 
your husband's sperm. And then you go through this countdown phase where they call you each day and say, okay, we have 12 fertilized eggs. The next day we have seven, six, five. And then it came down to just one. Like, right, we're going to implant this. So they do. I get pregnant again. They're about the same time frame, eight, what, almost two months, I miscarried again. And now I'm starting to realize that this, this is a problem. This is, this is might, might not happen. But we try again, and it, it's very expensive, too. At that time, insurance didn't cover it. Again, I'm not sure what's happening now. And, and I did miscarry again, same time frame. So we could get pregnant, but I couldn't continue to carry a pregnancy. And it was just so, so overwhelmingly sad. And meanwhile, the hardest part was all my young friends, we are getting pregnant and having children. And, and I want to be happy for them. I really do. But I just can't, I, you know, I, I started to retreat into myself because I, I didn't, it was so hard to be around. I couldn't go to baby showers. They didn't know what to say to me. It was a big struggle. And I was probably at that time that I actually started drinking in response to trauma or sadness or depression for the first time. There was a specific incident. I remember one of my best friends to this day, uh, she was getting pregnant with her second child and they were going through infertility treatments. And we were at a party. It was at our house, actually. And I walked over to her. I can see it right now in my mind. And I offered her a drink and she said, oh, I'm not drinking. And of course, I knew that meant something. And I said, what's going on? Jennifer and she said, Oh, Maureen, pregnant. And she said it like that. Like, how sad is that that your friend has to couch it in this, you know, being so careful? So I tried to act like I was really excited, but I believe I turned around and literally did a couple shots right then. And as the day progressed, we went out to a lunch and everybody, of course, was talking about it. And I tried to be there for her and excited, but I just I just couldn't. Plus I'm now drunk inebriated and I knew I had to get out of there. I was gonna lose it. So I grabbed my husband's car keys and uh I said, You go home with somebody else. I, I gotta get out of here. And I just took off, which is not wise. I got home and I just before I got home, I was driving home and I was crying and screaming. I was holding onto the screaming wheel and I was going, Why not me, God? Why not me? I just couldn't figure it out. And the shut down after that point. And my friends didn't know what to say to me. They all knew by now this was really hard. And in order to ease their discomfort and my own, I sort of hid behind this party girl persona. Like I started really taking that on. Like, look at me. I'm, gosh, guys, don't worry about it. I'm having so much fun. I love how much. When you can come out, when you have a babysitter, come out with me and we'll drink and we'll party and we'll have fun. And I really latched on to that personality. And then... But inside, it was really hurting, you know. And we, at that time, were going to this church. I loved this church. And we were really close to the pastor and his wife. And they knew how much we were struggling. And they had a situation where a family came to Pastor Bill and said, listen, my daughter's pregnant. And do you know anybody that would like to adopt? The thing is, she's about to deliver in a month. So they came to us. And I thought, this is it. This is what God has been preparing us for. You know, this is why we couldn't get pregnant. And so John and I really prayed about it. And 
we accepted, yes, let's do this. This must be it. And the little girl, she was young, you know, 15 or 16, wanted to meet us. And so she and her mother came over to the house and I was so excited and nervous. I cleaned that house from top to bottom. I just so wanted to make a good impression because she was considering us and some other couples as well. And we walked around the yard, just she and I, and we talked and she's like, oh, I could just see my little boy growing up here. And I think you and John would be great parents. I really want you guys to be parents. So I was so excited. And we, we moved on with the adoption proceedings. It was not conventional. My father was our lawyer. They had a lawyer. And, but we were moving fast because now there's only like two weeks left and the church is giving us all kinds of things. I didn't have anything, you know, I didn't know how to prepare for having a baby, but I just knew this is what God wanted. And then two weeks, yeah, we're about the two week point now. They started calling, the mother did, and making requests like, well, we would like to be able to travel or we would like to be able to go on holidays, child, and, you know, all kinds of extra requests. And after speaking with my father, I, we called them and we said, we're just kind of not comfortable now with all these things you're adding on. And then the next day, they, they just cut off all communication through their lawyer and said, you will cease and desist any adoption proceedings. We do not want any contact with you. Do not contact our daughter. And that was it. We couldn't talk to them. We couldn't find out what was going on. And I was just crushed. I, it was worse than any miscarriage. We had a baby room, baby stuff. And all I could think about was, how am I going to tell everybody? All the kind people have been praying for us and have given us things. And I thought this was it, God. I thought you, you know, I really thought this was it. So I was, I think I shut down at that point. And I, I, in retrospect now, doing a lot of work and a lot of healing and a lot of journaling, I see how I really shut down and I really kind of turned away from God. Mm. I was angry and really leaned into that party girl persona. And I was struggling to find out who am I over the years. I keep seeing where I've written in my journal, who am I as a woman? Like if I can't have children and I'll never be part of this club. That all my friends are. I'll never experience the highs and the lows. I'm not, I know it's not a panacea. I know children are a challenge in many ways, but I'll never experience that. And even to this day, that still occurs, you know, Mother's Day or now my friends, all their, all their kids are in college. You know, I'll never experience those great relationships and things that happen in weddings and all of that. So it, it's still a struggle, but I've, you know, come through it so much. But I looked for other identities. That's when I really leaned into the fitness persona. And I started doing some figure competitions, uh, which were incredible, actually. And those were the times I wasn't drinking at all. Because when you prepare for these fitness competitions, these figure competitions, you try to get as lean as possible. And you don't drink alcohol because you know, bodybuilders know about what you need to eliminate to be fit and healthy. And alcohol was the number one thing. And so for six to eight months at a time, I would not drink. I felt incredible, physically, clear-headed, focused. But I didn't do the inner work, the hard work, you know, on myself. And so when every competition ended, that night I was rearing to go out and start drinking. Had my martini. Think about that. Coming off of eight, six, eight months time eating very healthfully, and I bombarded my body without 
you know, on the night of the competition over. I'd be sick for days. I still wasn't putting it together, you know. So I went right back into that detoxing and retoxing on this fitness person who would binge drink. So I wouldn't drink during the week, but I would really drink hard on the weekend. Believe me, a lot of fitness professionals are doing that too, especially yeah. young ones. Yeah. So there's this really kind of strange relationship with alcohol. But all the while, I'm still really angry underneath. I'm sad, but I don't want to show that to anybody. So it's not like you would know if you ran into me. You'd think, well, Maureen, she really liked to have a good time when we go out. You know, but then what they didn't know is I would then disappear for days. The alcohol, especially someone with depression, chemical depression, alcohol like charged me up. It really overloaded my brain with dopamine. And, and GABA and serotonin and all of that. But then, then after the alcohol was out of my system, I would be so depleted and so depressed for days. And if I had drank for a whole, whole weekend, that was compounded, you know, so yeah. it could be a whole week and just hiding out. And I could hide out because I didn't have children. Nobody could really see what was going on inside yeah. of me. You know, so flash forward to just about six years ago and my aging parents are both sick and dying and actually my mother was very sick first she had dementia i was in a job i hated so i was doing this triangle i live in maryland i drive to virginia for my john i was a landlord so out of place of my personality and then i drive to pennsylvania to go for 10 days or so and we do shifts between my siblings and taking care of my mother and giving my father a break and during that time, I would come home and my dad would say, babe, let's have a martini. And that was like our bonding thing, you know? So I would make one and he'd grab a very weak one. He's in his almost 90 at this point. And I would have one. And then, of course, I'd go out with my friends who are still living in our hometown and I drink a lot more. And one of these times he said to me, he's like, babe, I'm worried about you. You know, you're really just one. Just have one. That was his way, you know? Yeah, expressing concern. And I'm like, I got it, Dad. Shortly after that, my father had a stroke. He was sort of our rock. He, he was an amazing man. Even at 90, he was working. He was a lawyer. He was golfing. You know, he was, he was sharp. So this stroke took us all by surprise. So now my mother's has dementia. My father's had a stroke. So we're taking care of both of my parents. And I am drinking fart. And so are my siblings. So the cycle of depression and anxiety and then showing up and doing what I had to do and just drinking when I got home. Well, my father was amazing because after the stroke at 92, he tried really hard to come back. He was going through therapy and everything, but he sometimes stroke victims, they'll climb and you think they're getting better and they'll hit something called a peak and then they're declining. So we had come to a point where we knew my dad was going down a decline and we had to tell him, you know, you're not coming back from this. So all of us siblings were in a room, in a hospital room with my dad and my brother. We elected him to be the spokesperson. And my dad was a gentleman even after the stroke, even with his speech being disfigured. But he called the doctor in and he said, doctor, have you, have you met my children? And he said, let me introduce you to my daughter, Meredith. She's an artist. And then Donna, 
she's a biochemist. And Mark, he's a judge. And this is my daughter, Maureen, my baby, the drinker. Oh. And I was like, so shocked. But nobody else really caught it in the room because the gravity of what we were telling my father that day. That's not who I am. That's not all I am. That's not who I want to be. And I said to my siblings, I know it's guys catching that. And they're like, oh, he was just, you know, he meant you're his fun party. When I'm like, no, no, that's not what he meant. Because I knew the other conversations he had had that he was concerned. It was a last ditch effort. And this being Father's Day weekend coming up, I wanted him to know I heard him. I heard you, Dad. And, uh, you know, that really stuck with me. And that's when I really started thinking about my drinking. And that something had to change. And all this time, you know, I'm praying and I know, and I'm like, God, what, what purpose do you have for me? Like who, I'm still struggling with who am I? I'm believing all these lies that I'm nobody if I'm not, if I'm not a mother. I'm still 25 years later struggling with that same belief. And if you've ever heard this song by Tasha Layton, it's called Look What You Does. She's a Christian artist. I wrote it down because I said, I let the lies take control. And it wasn't until I started really praying, I mean, really praying. And, you know, there were times that I'd pray, please, God, don't let me drink. Or it was more like, let me drink, but not experience the consequences. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't until I really laid it down and said, I can't do this without you. I am killing myself. I need your help. So it wasn't until that, that that is when I stopped believing the lies and then he did have a purpose for me. And maybe in all of this heartache and the struggle and depression and infertility and loss, you know, I was keeping that all to myself. I didn't want anybody to know because I felt ashamed. Like how worked is that that I felt ashamed? That's a lie. And when I started to really journal, like journal, like base off and pray, I realized, you know, alcohol was like thing I had to stop. And he, I he literally, I think, pray to God. And I, I really heard him say, I have purpose for you. I've got so much for you. But this thing, this behavior, this habit, it is getting in the way. And I believe that with all my heart. And that is when. I found The Path by This Naked Mind. I found Annie Grace's book and I read it. And that first chapter where it says, do you wake up at 3.30 in the morning and your heart is racing and you can't sleep? Like, that is me. And so I, I remember looking up The Path, was your long plan. And it said, if you're serious about making alcohol small and irrelevant in your life, this is for you. And I knew I needed support. I knew AA wasn't for me. I just couldn't relate to I am powerless because I'm not powerless. And this coaching program was what changed my life. And through that, I was able to really shift, you know, that I needed alcohol to be this person that was really very empty and sad. And I was able to let that go pretty quickly, the alcohol, and have that mindset shift and start to realize, you know, God does have a lot for me. Like the further I got away from alcohol, the more I really started to believe that. Yeah. That's when through that coaching program, I was like, I want to be, 
I want to do what they're doing. I want to help other women, other people. Like they're helping me right now. I've always enjoyed being a coach, being a trainer for years, helping people. I just knew it. And I, I said, okay, God, I'm going to apply to this coaching program. And that's when I met Mead because she interviewed me. <laughs> and I just knew from that time on, like I have not felt this sense of purpose in so long and drive. And, you know, it's challenging starting this coaching business. And I'm like, man, I really <laughs> do this because sometimes it's, it's hard. But I know now that all the pain that I went through, all the loss and all the trauma, that there are other women like me. There are other women who struggle with depression too. And it's this stigma and we try to hide it. Believe me, you probably don't know some of your friends and some of your family who are actually really depressed because we're masters at hiding. Mm -hmm. And we use things like alcohol, you know, and other numbing agents. So that is you know, where I am now and, and I just so want to share and I want people to know that it was the moment I have it in my journal, the moment I wrote to God and I'm like, I can't do this without you. I, I give it up to you, all of it. And, and from that day on, I didn't drink. September 14th was the last day I drank. This coming September will be two years. Um, Maureen, I'm just like so grateful for you. And it's so funny because We've obviously come across each other, you know, quite a bit these days with various groups we're in and things. And you're the like the happiest, most joyful, kindest, most wonderful lady. And like, I didn't know the extent of everything. And I'm just, when I sit here and I think about like, when you said God has a plan and God has a purpose, and I relate so much to all of that. Like, it's bananas. Like, it's bananas that like Mead was your coach. And when you think about or your coach, you know, your interviewee, I don't know. I just, when I think about like, because I relate so much to it. I relate so much to like my mom passing away and me going straight to the party girl, yeah. right? And like, I was like, I am so sad. I'm going to be the fun person and this is going to be a party house and I'm going to make everything look glamorous and blah, blah, blah. And it was just such a facade and it felt so fake and I didn't realize that until I had that moment where you had that same moment where it's just like, God, like, what is going on? Like, I cannot do this on my own anymore. And so, oh, I'm just so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for you being here and telling your story and and doing this work, which, as you said, is like not easy work, <laughs> building our businesses and building our coaching practices and trying to be heard and relate and find the people that need help and all of that. It's, it's a lot of work, but I'm so grateful you're doing this. And I have no doubt in my mind that God has just the most incredible plans for you to help the, the exact right, per, like, you know, the right people. And so when we're talking about like, you know, stressing out because we're trying to find clients and all that, like, because that's what our conversations are a lot. It's just like, it's so much bigger than that, right? It's so much bigger than that. Like God's so much bigger than all of these other things. And look at where, how far you've come and where he's brought you. And I just, who knows? It could be this podcast. It could be another podcast that you've been on, but you're going to touch so many lives. And I'm just, yeah, I'm so grateful for you. 
Thanks. I'm so grateful for you. And you're right. When I, I reached out to Coach Terry, who was the first coach I'd worked with business-wise, you know, on, on the business, she said, you've got to meet Christy. Because you know, I shared my faith with her. And she said, I want you to meet Christy. And, and now I'm on this Christian WhatsApp coaching group, which is so nice. And Mead's on there too. And so many other coaches. And I love that, that connection. I'd love to meet everybody in person someday. That would be really cool. Yeah. that Yeah. That's part of the part of art yeah. of many, many dreams, right, Mead? Yeah. <laughs> we have plans. a lot of them. Lots of plans. Yeah. <laughs> lots of ideas and dreams. Yeah. One day, not impossible, but there's so many pieces. Thank you, Maureen. Because I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about our conversation when I interviewed you and how we had a lot of things in common, but we didn't, I didn't know any of this and you didn't know how any of that touched my story. And there's, you know, there, there are places that not the extent to which you have suffered. My gosh, like just loss after loss and but it bumps up against some of my story that I haven't shared before and and I and I I'm so hired by your your courage in doing the work that is this work that we get to do where we can look at we can look at our stories and we can see how we ended up where we ended up and where we want to go and you know who who do we want to, whose voice are we listening to now? Like, are, are we still listening to the lies, the voice of the enemy? Or are we right. choosing to listen to the voice of God? And what's the difference between that? And, and it's so easy to see how we can, it just takes one little thing and, and lots of big things and all the things that, that kind of make those lies stronger. And we believe them and they go unchecked. And then of course we end up finding something to try and get rid of that and a new identity to fit. And oh my gosh, like the party girl thing, like that's, that was my identity too. And uh, I just, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just blown away by your beautiful, just real story that even in all of that pain and struggle, he is creating a, a beautiful work through you. And, uh, you know, I, when I first started this coaching, I thought, I am not going to talk about my depression, the infertility and the loss. One of my coach friends who was going through class with me, she's like, you got to talk about that. I'm like, no way. I'm not talking about that. I'm going to talk about fitness and detoxing and retoxing because I can stay in that surface level. Mm-hmm. But all the time I'm praying, God, let me do what you want me to do. Show me where you want me to go. And it soon became evident that this is about so much more. It, Fitness and detoxing, retoxing is a part of my story. And it's something that so many women do. So many high achieving, functioning women, you know, who are trying to look like to have it all together. And, you know, but that's just the surface level part of the story. All this stuff underneath that so many of us hide. And that it took me a while to get here. But I thought this is what this is what I need to share. And we do such a good job Mm -hmm. until we don't. We do such a good job you know, spinning the plates, like making it all. I mean, that was absolutely my reality too. And and no one would have ever known there was so much under that. I didn't want to even come face to face with what was underneath that. And I and I think about specifically like with grief, I heard this, I heard this once that it's like, you know, with losses, with whether it's pregnancy loss or loss of a parent or 
any anybody, any life we've cared about, it's not just that loss there. It's all of that we don't get to experience. Yeah. And drinking while you're grieving. Yeah. That, yeah. you know, we're so inundated with that message from every television show, anything you read or your, even your friends, because they're well-meaning and, and they think, let's go get a drink. You're sad or you need a drink or I'll think I need a drink. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're so, we so believe that, but the grief doesn't go away. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's waiting for you. And now, you know, after drinking, you're that much more depleted and can't handle it more. So it becomes that vicious cycle of you not wanting to heal and learning, you know, how to feel the loss. So I, here I am married now over 30 years. It's been you know, almost 29 years since that whole event started happening with not being able to get pregnant. And just in the last few years was I processing the grief yeah. because yeah. I didn't allow it. Yeah. I heard you saying too, like, I, you know, I want to be happy for my friends. Of course. Yeah. And it's like that, like that fight between honoring how sad mm-hmm. we really are. But of course we and we don't want to make other, I, this I heard in your story too, and this is where it bumps up against my story as well, but like, I don't, I don't want to make other people uncomfortable with what I'm going mm-hmm. through. I mean, how many things have I suffered through all by myself because I don't want to burden anybody mm-hmm. with what I'm dealing with, with what I'm struggling through and suffering with. And, and, and I just, yeah, I wonder how many people listening right now, how many women are listening feeling maybe men too feeling exactly the same way like what what would you if you could encourage that listener right now what would you say to them the the person that's listening going oh my gosh I feel so seen by what Maureen's saying and sister I am with you oh how how do I do this well what would you encourage them with yeah the the lie or the belief that we're telling ourselves is there's nobody like me Mm-hmm. I'm all alone. Nobody will get it. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to bother anybody with this. And I just got to look like I have it all together and it'll go away. Yeah. It doesn't. It just goes deeper. It spreads. And it comes mm-hmm. out in some form or fashion. You know, so I would say I didn't, I didn't get support back then. I didn't reach out. I just didn't see the point. But now, in retrospect, I know that if I had reached out, gotten support and there are so many more support groups now and whether that be for depression or drinking certainly or infertility and loss or loss of you know losing your parents there's grieving support it's so important the community in all those areas is so important because once you start talking to somebody else you're like oh i'm not alone yeah they do get me and i can talk about it I don't have yeah. to pretend I'm okay. Like that is incredibly healing. Yeah. It's scary, right? It's scary. We're scared to be vulnerable. But vulnerability kills shame. You know, to quote mm-hmm. Brene Brown. When I first heard her say that, I was like, oh my gosh, she's, that is so true. I've been yeah. so free, so afraid to be vulnerable all this time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's yeah. uh, that's too where I, I think about like of course we believe those lies because that's where the that's where the enemy has the greatest chance, mm-hmm. you know, keeping us isolated and away from yeah. yeah, living living God's best for us and 
with him. And so it makes it's like it makes perfect sense and how easily that happens. But then to your point about connecting with others and community, I'm huge on connection. And mm-hmm. that's something that like, yeah, to have a space where you can be yourself and we don't do we don't do vulnerability like we are vulnerable but we grow up learning how to protect that vulnerability so finding that group that space where we can let that guard down and you know and let others in gosh there's so much healing in that but that takes a lot of courage and you my friends just embody that it's so beautiful i'm just truly just following what i feel like god wants me to do like it's time to share it and it's healing to me I hope it's healing to others. You know, and I used to think I was broken, defective. And now I realize, and again, this is from that song, I'm not broken. He's breaking new ground inside of me. Like, mm. he, like what's happening now is crazy. <laughs> and it's only a God thing. It's like it couldn't be any other way. But I had to get rid of that big domino. He, you know, it was really clear. This is standing in your way. This is standing in our way of you living out your purpose is the alcohol. Yeah, I love that so much. I, I When you said the uh, thing about being broken, I just remember, like, the, I literally remember the day that I, like, opened my Bible to 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and his power is made perfect in my weakness. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, I am so weak and I'm so broken right now, but I'm actually the opposite of powerless because I've got him. And it's like, Again, I could, I could cry, start bawling again talking about it, but like knowing the plans that he's had for each the three of us after we all came to that realization, I mean, I cry when I think about it because it's just so awesome. Yeah, and it's so easy to get caught up in what the world thinks is success. Yeah. It looks like totally and to lose sight of, you know, what God has for us is so much different than what the world says. And constantly, yeah. every day, I have to constantly, you know, renew my mind, right? Mm-hmm. I've got to yes. remember that because otherwise I can easily get caught off it in it again. So it's a constant, you know, being in God's word and, and praying for him to work through me, you know, instead of me thinking I have to do this because that's just setting myself, myself up for, you know, more trouble and failure. So learning how to rely, you know, on God. Is has been a huge lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Been the greatest gift I've learned. Yeah, too. And also I I I find myself, you know, having to, you know, remember that too. Like, oh wait, I don't have to control this. Number one, I never had control over all the things. Right. That was just an illusion. But also, like, I don't have to do your job anymore. Not that I was, but that illusion, right? And and mm-hmm. and by the way, oh my gosh. Thank you, God, that I don't have to. Yeah, I can surrender it to you and depend on you. I don't have to carry this all by myself anymore. And that is, uh, took me, uh, took me 40, 40 years to figure that out, but (laughs) always right on time, right? (laughs) Yes. And you know, I still have depression, like I had chemical depression, but I now know healthy coping mechanisms mm-hmm. how to deal with that i will say it's been a, an amazing thing is that i've been able to get off of antidepressants i've taken it on my life that's amazing wow, wow. that's amazing now i'm not 
saying this is what happens for everybody. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Of course. If no one's saying that. Yeah. No. If they have yeah. a great role and they're a great medicine. But I just, once my head started to clear and I started getting healthier and my mind and my body, and my brain were healing, I thought, I want to go off of these. So I called my doctor. I did it with, you know, supervision and titrated off of them. And I don't take anything for sleep. I don't take any, any antidepressants. Oh, is it so, not taking things for sleep the best thing yeah. ever? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So good. That's been an amazing side effect of, again, removing the alcohol. And, and it's such a big mind block we all have, you know, go off on the alcohol industry, but just the way we're inundated with all mm. these messages. So to get back to, you know, just being sober in spirit, clear headed. I don't need all those other things. I don't, and I'm so grateful. I'm glad they're there. You know, I want to make sure I'm being clear on that. But for me, I just knew once I finally got free of the alcohol, I didn't need those anymore. But I do lots of other things that take yeah. care of myself when I'm feeling stressed or down or depressed. Yeah. yeah. Maureen, can you tell everybody where to find you? And we'll obviously put all the things in the show, na- sh- show notes, the yeah. show notes, so people can find you. But yeah, let us know what the best place is. Yeah. So my coaching business is called Sober Fit Chick. Uh, as a former personal trainer, I thought, I'd, yeah, I like Sober Fit Chick. Soberfitchick.com <laughs> is my website. And Sober Fit Chick LLC is my Instagram. And I do have a five step guide to get off the detox retox cycle that you can download yeah like that Love out it. so good you know on my instagram link and uh so you can find me there sober fit chick awesome thank you so much thank you thank you thank you thank you both for having me on it's been a real honor and love it's, to talk to you guys yeah it's i mean i'm just always just i can't believe that this is what i get to do it's such an yeah. honor to be in a space with other women who are, you know, walking the narrow path and whether free from alcohol and as a follower of Jesus, I mean, that's a very narrow path and right in the minority, right? And and takes boldness and confidence and courage. And it's just it's such an honor to to have your story today and for you to to entrust our audience with it. So thank you that's for coming, Maureen. Thank what you. a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. You can find all of our episodes at butjesusdrankwine.com and make sure you follow us over on the gram at Love Life Sober with Christy and Mead at I'm Not Sober, I'm Free. To learn more about what we do, you can visit our websites at meadhollandshirley.com and lovelifesober.com. Take a screenshot of this podcast and share it with a friend or two. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't have to worry about missing a single episode. And if you love what we're doing, please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. This helps more women who are feeling stuck and alone in the overdrinking cycle to find hope and encouragement. Thanks, ladies. We so appreciate you. We'll see you next week.